This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The story that everyone is talking about, it is uh, the horrific fire in Port Colborne, which killed four family members, and we've been talking about it a lot in the news. And this is, if you really, really think about what has happened here, it's three generations of one family. An 82-year-old great-grandmother, a mother, and her two children, including a two-year-old boy. It is, it is just heartbreaking. And if you think about Port Colborne, which most of us know, certainly in the Hamilton area, it is that kind of sleepy town, that cottage town. Everybody knows everybody. So it'll have wide-reaching implications and, and just leave a, a trail of heartbreak. And so now we're starting to learn more about who this family was and, and the devastation they leave behind and killed 37-year-old Tammy Bird. She was mom to 15-year-old Samantha and that beautiful 2-year-old boy, Josh, and then her uh, 82-year-old grandmother, Eve, also killed. And so far, Eve is the only person that has been removed from that gutted home. Two men, including Tammy Bird's husband, Joe, and an an uncle did manage to get out of that house. But, you know, if you listen to what people who were there say, about what they saw as this fully engulfed home was burning down. Here's what witnesses describe seeing. I've been in the job for 40, 40, almost 45 years. In those 45 years up until today, I had four fire deaths. I've had four today alone. So that tells you how severe this is. It's obviously devastating the family and our our firefighting crews. Uh, It certainly has a negative effect on them. So that was a fire chief speaking about uh, something that he has seen in his career, but of course, not that much devastation in just one day. So, you know, his job and his crew's job is going to be going about investigating this fire, finding out what happened. It'll be a long, long time until we know what happened. But, you know, the weather conditions, like this cold weather and like the snow squalls that come through, make it really, really difficult for them uh, to go through not just the investigation phase of this fire, but the recovery. So they have to go through all that debris, all that devastation, just to find Tammy's body and the body of her two children. So it's really, really devastating um, to see this kind of thing. I've covered a lot of fatal fires in my time, and for whatever reason... It seems to be around Christmas time or as we settle into the really cold, cold weather that we, we see these kinds of things. And it's just, it's terrible the toll it takes, not just on friends and family, but those on the front lines. And so I think it's important to mention that a crowdsourcing uh, effort is now underway on GoFundMe. It is called Help a Father Who Has Lost Everything, and the goal is to raise about $25,000. And that's, of course, not just to pay for all the burial costs, the funeral costs, but for this man to rebuild. I mean, he has to rebuild his entire life. He's got nothing. So that story is going to be on the radar for quite some time as we wait to find out exactly what caused this fire. Um, And we will get that information up on our web page in case you want to uh, uh, help out in any way, whether it's two bucks, five bucks, ten bucks, any little bit will help out. So we'll keep tuned uh, to that story because it really is quite devastating. Uh, But I also wanted to switch gears here. Um, to another story that, uh, you know, sounded like a tragedy, but now maybe not so much. You, you probably heard about it because, of course, CHML did cover it. It's a story involving a Santa Claus out of uh, Tennessee who claimed a five-year-old cancer victim died in his arms. And the story went viral. It was such a tearjerker 
that it went everywhere, all over the radio stations. I posted it. I was like, geez, that's terrible. But apparently, we've all been taken because his story now can't be verified. So here's just the background. His name, Eric Schmidt Matson, and he looks exactly to Santa Claus. And so he's been able to make a living off of that. Well, Matson claimed that he was called by a local Tennessee hospital who asked if he'd grant a wish to a dying five-year-old boy. His story goes like this. You know, he just kind of looked like he had that look on his face, like he wasn't really grasping it, you know? And I'm like, can you do me a favor? And he goes, sure. So I mean, he was just like, that, you know, sure, you know, that, that kind of thing. Says, you get up those pearly gates, you just tell him you're Santa's number one elf. you like, I am? You sure are. They'll let you in for, I'm sure they'll let you right in. He goes, they will? I says, I know it. So he just came up and he gave me a big hug. I had a hold of him and he just kind of looked up at me and he says, Santa, can you help me? And that's when he passed. Jeez, you crying yet? I mean... That's what happened. Everyone started kind of crying and passing the story uh, around. But apparently it didn't happen. And now this Santa's in hiding. And this, folks, sadly, is what we call fake news. And it discredits the media every time it happens. I can tell you that the basic journalistic rules, Journalism 101, check the facts. It's just part of our job. Because now the story's gone all the way around the world. And while it is now being discredited, it will still remain a truth to many out there on the Internet. Uh, You know, I ask myself, when are we going to learn that being first is no longer the most important part of our job? It's being right. Let's bring in Mark Gordon to talk about this. He is, of course, a marketing expert uh, who can talk to all things, including social media and the effects it's having. Good to have you, Mark. Good morning. You know, I heard this story, and like many, was totally caught up in it. And then I read yesterday that, oh, yeah, it didn't happen. But, you know, this isn't the first time we're hearing about it. Fake news is actually becoming a very big industry in the news business. It is. And uh, I think in large part uh, it's due to the fact that people are turning to social media as what they see as a trusted source of news. Uh, Instead of listening to a radio station or or turning on a a legitimate news channel or news show, they're they're seeing these things, these stories popping up in their news feed in uh, Facebook or Twitter. And they're like, oh, it must be true. But the problem here, Mark, is that an actual newsroom went out to cover this story. And for whatever reason... They didn't call the hospital. They didn't call the family. They didn't verify with anyone that this actually happened. And so, therefore, it goes out. You know, this is the kind of story, Mark, and I hate to be crass, but that you would take to a news director and say, I've got a story about a Santa. That, that A newsroom would say, oh, that's a great story. Let's go with it. And, and clearly, the reporter on it didn't do the basics. It, you're right. It is a great story. You know, just like you, I, I totally fell for it, too, and I even shared it on my network. And, you know, I mean, you'd probably you know, be curious to get your views on this, but my thought is, is that so many news outlets, legitimate news outlets, are feeling pressure to almost compete mm-hmm. against the speed at which social media can happen. I mean, literally, 
you know, we're in a world now where everybody's a journalist. They can take a picture of a car crash, of a fire, of literally anything, and within seconds, it can be on social media and potentially go viral, where, you know, you get a legitimate news agency. And like you said, they fact check, they, they run it by multiple people, they do everything they need to, and this can take potentially hours. Yeah. And by then, it's in the world of social, social media, it's almost old news. Yeah, well, look, in the good old days of when I started out, if you had a really good exclusive or a really big story, it was all saved for the 6 o'clock news. It was like, tease it throughout the day, and social media obviously wasn't an issue uh, back then, but it was tease it, tease it, and get people tuned into the 6 o'clock news. But that's that's gone, because then social media came, and it's like, just get it on, because you want to be that network or that station that has the big headline of the day. And in doing so, it's put a lot of pressure on newsrooms to get it first. But I I fear um, that we're making just simply too many mistakes. And and so then you get this whole industry of fake news. You know, Hillary Clinton talked about it during the election. Um, You know, politicians have gotten caught in it. And and in fact, Mark, uh, the, the fake news itself is now an industry because you can use it as propaganda if, especially if you're a politician, if you want to move public opinion on certain issues, be damned with the facts. Hey, if this is a narrative that can help, and what we saw in the Podesta emails of the WikiLeaks, uh, the, the Clinton team actually wanted to use the Russian hacking as part of a narrative against Trump, whether it was true or not. So now we've got this huge Russia story going, and it's like, what's real and what's not? Absolutely. And you know what? I think Donald Trump took that even a step further, and it's gotten to the point now where he can say something. Mm -hmm. And it has a huge influence on not only uh, the relationships the U.S. has with other countries, but even, you know, the stock market and other types of markets. He can make a statement, and it doesn't even matter whether it's true or not. And he's still, you know, reports are still showing the number of of things that he says that are still absolutely not true, and yet they're influencing the real world, we'll call it. And uh, I see this problem just getting, to be honest with you, worse and worse. I, I don't know how legitimate news agencies are going to keep up with it. And I really don't understand or don't know how the public's going to be able to, to really understand and trust what they're seeing from sources anymore because they're just being bombarded with, with stories, some legitimate and some not. We're talking to Mark Gordon. He's a marketing expert. And if you want to jump into this conversation, 905-645-3221, I'd love to know you know, do you trust what you're reading anymore? I mean, have we gotten to the kind of tipping point where you doubt everyday stories that you're hearing, even on, quote unquote, legitimate news sources? I mean, Mark, take a look at the the story that we're hearing, this tragedy out of uh, Port Colburn. Um, and there will be social media reports all over the place. The media will stay on this story for a long time. But my concern is, you know, that people will start putting information, whether it's friends or people that live in the area, that then somehow turns into truth. And it can actually either really hurt investigation purposes and or could hurt, um, you know, the remaining father who who remains to be alive, um, could hurt him down the line in, in rumors and innuendo and or with fundraising efforts. Absolutely. I mean, all you need is one person to make that post insinuating something that's not true. It's the way public opinion. And now, you know, this poor dad who's having to rebuild his life, you know, is all of a sudden now a potential suspect in a, in a possible crime. You know, and is that is that what we need? No. Is, you know, this is not good for anybody. 
And, uh, you know, it's important, I think, that the public really understand the, the validity of a story based on the channel. I think that's what they really need to understand. And, you know, if it's coming through social media, uh, like Facebook or Twitter or, or anything like that, you know, the first thing they need to do is understand, okay, it's coming through a social feed. That's mm-hmm. fine. That's one thing. Then they, I think, need to dig a little deeper and say, okay, who's sending it? Yeah. And then perhaps even go even deeper and say, where did it originate? You know, if it originated from USA Today or the Toronto Star or CNN, that's one thing. But sometimes these stories just pop up out of out of nowhere. It's on somebody's blog, you know. And and we saw that happen uh, down in in Washington. The story of the tunnels under the pizza place. Yeah. Where apparently there was a you know a, a, a pedophilia a, ring that was being operated by Hillary Clinton, and then absolutely. yeah. Well, yeah. but it's interesting though. You you can't though just rely on one source. I don't now. I don't post anything unless I've seen it in at least two major publications because that's just the direction of uh, that, that we I think have to go uh, to get. Um, this fake news uh, into control. I want to bring in Alex to the conversation. He might have a question for you, but uh, what's your comment on this, Alex? Oops. Did I forget to press a button? There we go. Do we have Alex? No. There we go. Alex? No. (laughs) Hold on. Let me try this in here. I told Alex, can you hear me? Yes. There you are. Look, I pressed the right button. (laughs) All righty. Your thoughts? I, I I have uh, two quick points. This first one, like I believe that the, the major public thinks mainstream news is dead. They've been lied to for years and years and years. Now, I'm wondering. I'm a, I like to ask you: Did you or the journalists uh, or whoever do they take a Hippocratic oath, just like doctors? Yeah, I mean, look, in journalism school, you're taught to, you know, that you have to source. You have to source. You don't have to divulge that source, but you actually have to source your material. So, yes. But you do not... You don't have to swear on a book, though, no. No. There's no oath. No. Okay. Well, that's one problem. Now, I, 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 myself, personally, I'm just an armchair, sit-at-home retired guy, and the lies that have been coming out of mainstream news is just horrendous. And mainstream news has lost their credibility with me and my friends, my family. Well, not my family; mm-hmm. they're still brainwashed. Like, like we've been lied to all through the election. We've been lied through. Let, let's go to Hamilton. We've been lied to. Uh, as it's, it's, it's like um, sometimes you guys don't ask questions. I don't know why. Because an example I have is I have a letter here from uh, Health Canada. It was got through by uh, the Freedom of Information Act. And it states categorically that there are no studies showing the safety and effectiveness of fluoridation. Now, our health department has stated, and I saw appeal the other week. I'm running out of time, Alex. They they came out with all these books showing that it is safe and effective. I phoned up the health department in Hamilton and I asked them and they said, we've read many studies. So I'm asking for these studies. Who are the scientists that right. signed off and on I, fluoridation? I've got, I've got to cut you there, Alex, because I'm up against the clock, but I get where you're going with this and I appreciate your thoughts. And Mark, he, you know, he's right. We get these studies and reports and suggestions, um, but look, if it's not an authorized report, it shouldn't be going to air. That's how we get the anti-vaxxers and all that kind of junk science that gets into the to the mainstream. Very true, very true. But I, I also think a lot of people are confusing uh, real news yeah. 
with uh, sort of editorial type yeah. thing, and, and especially on some of these news stations, you will have someone come in and they'll rant and rave about a specific topic, and it's really an opinion-based piece, mm-hmm. more so than fact, and I think it's important that people understand that if someone's going to say something, you know, to understand, is he specifying or is she specifying the news? Are they talking about the news, like factual, yep. or are they just... Casting their opinion. I agree with you. And Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. That is Mark Gordon weighing in on the whole industry of fake news. But as Alex said, look, the media has to step it up and we're going to have to put provisions in place to make sure that that guys like fake Santa or the story of the dying boy just don't get out there. It's just not acceptable. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Let's talk politics, shall we? And I want to ask you, how low can Kathleen Wynne go? According to the latest polling done by Angus Reid, she is now the least popular premier in the country with just 16% approval ratings. Uh, now, these are devastating numbers. And we are 18 months away from an election. So most will say, hat, she's done. Oh, no, no. Like Jason from Friday the 13th. I know that this premier can absolutely survive and come back. Like Jason, you know, he is exploded, he is drowned, he is stabbed, he is shot, he is electrocuted, he is dropped from the sky, and he comes back every time. But there's no question that these crushing hydro rates are taking a toll. I mean, people are losing their power and choosing between food and heat. So this is the kind of issue that can crush a politician. But Kathleen Wynne is no ordinary politician. She's tough and she's a fighter. And you can see she's already trying to fix this problem. But she can't. Anything Kathleen Wynne does to try and fix hydro is yet another Band-Aid fix that will hurt like hell when you try to rip it off. But anyone who just thinks that the opposition is going to come on in and walk away with this... I'm telling you right now, you'd be wrong. Christina Blizzard is all Queen's Park. She writes for the Toronto Sun. Good to have you with us. Thanks, Alex. Am I wrong? No, you are absolutely <laughs> right. You have just summed it up exactly. I mean, you would think that Kathleen Wynne at 16% would have what uh, political scientists call the dead cat bounce. Um, you know, in politics, you, you get to a point where there's just nothing you can do to um, you know, to make things better, to improve your numbers. It's and this looks very much like that to me. But as you say, she's Kathleen Wynne is extremely uh, ambitious. She's extremely competitive, and she is not going to give up that easily. And I think, you know, a lot of people say, you know, Patrick Brown, really, all he has to do is not screw it up. But we have seen in the last two or three elections that the PC leaders do just that. Well, yeah. And the problem right now is getting these, you know, sort of wrestling these social conservatives uh, from his back benches, trying to get them under control, trying to get them not to say really foolish things. And they just lurch from one extreme to another. And I remember I was here when Mike Harris uh, was the leader of the PC party and then subsequently the premier of the province. He he took, Mm -hmm. he got there because he was a very strong leader who was able to silence the, that wing of the party because it had been very difficult for them, uh, you know, 
to keep those under control. Harris came in and said, look, we are fiscal conservatives only. We don't care about all that, you know, the, the, the social conservatism, the abortion, uh, same-sex marriage, whatever. In fact, Harris, in, in fact, and Jim Flaherty, the, mm-hmm. the late Jim Flaherty, brought in a lot of measures to give rights to uh, same-sex partners. Uh, that, that worked very well. Yeah, you don't get reminded of that very often. We don't hear about that. But look, this is a debate that should be shut down right away by Patrick Brown because he's so much ammunition to throw against Kathleen Wynne. But you know that these small wedge issues like abortion should not even be an issue. It's a federal issue. It is not something we should even be discussing. And yet uh, the Wynne government, they will use every tiny little wedge issue uh, to knock Patrick Brown, the PCs off point. Exactly. And it'll work. Exactly, and it works. I mean, the answer to those, to all those questions is abortion has been settled. It's a federal issue. No, we're not interested in that. We've got a $300 billion debt Mm -hmm. and growing. That's our issue. We've got to wrestle this under control. We've got to get hydro rates under control. We're, We're not, you know, we are not social conservatives. We don't have time for those issues. They've been resolved. They're out of our hands. Yeah, and so look, I mean, I know there's a lot of jostling behind the scenes. Uh, Patrick Brown trying to prepare for for the election, getting people in place. Andrea Horvath likely doing the same. But Horvath has to really, um, she has to take back the left. Oh, absolutely. She needs to do a full Bernie Sanders. She has to go to the extreme left, I believe. Uh, In the last election, in 2014, the liberals ran to the left of the NDP, ironically. And at the federal level, a tactic that then again was used by the federal level, and it worked. Exactly. But then look what Kathleen Wynne did. She ran as, you know, on these, all these... Uh, extremely left-wing social issues. Then as soon as she got elected, she decided to sell off Hydro One, which is an extremely conservative measure, which even Mike Harris couldn't do. When he was the premier, he could not. He tried and failed to sell off those big utilities. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that Kathleen Wynne will be able to tack to the left this time, not with any credibility. So Andrea Andrea Horvath is pretty well fighting for her political life. It will be three strikes and you're out if she doesn't manage to pull this one off um, or or do at least become official opposition in in the next election in 2018. Could we see a leadership change there before the, uh, the next election or is it too late? With Andrea Horvath, yeah. I don't believe so. I think it's I think it's too late. But that's an, a very interesting question because there have been a lot of rumblings within the party. Um, but the the other issue is: will we see um, a leadership change with Kathleen Wynne? Yes. She wants to lead her party. She has said over and over she's leading the party into the next election. But with, if you've got, um, you know, popularity figures in, you know, at 16%, the party itself is used to power. They've been governing now since 2003. They, there could be a night of the long knives, and it would ha- have to happen very soon because there's only 18 months to the next election, but you could almost see the power brokers within the Liberal Party saying, look, we, we see no path to victory with Kathleen Wynne. We need to do a generation shift or we need to put a new uh, face on the party. 
and uh, move very quickly. They would have to do it almost immediately. But that's another scenario that uh, you could almost see happening. Yeah, but th- this party, I mean, look, y- you can cut the head off the snake. You're still left with the same uh, body. So, you know, take take Kathleen Wynne out. Who do you have? You know, D'Souza, you've got uh, Glenn Murray. I mean, they're all the same, making the same bad policy, uh, you know, getting involved in the same kind of scandal that hurts the taxpayer. Well, yeah, they tried to reset with a bit of a cabinet shuffle and then that throne speech and they've yeah. been offering, you know, all kinds of little bribes and they're desperately trying to find ways to cut uh, the cost of electricity. But, you know, they, they're going to have to live with their actions. They are the one who botched the whole energy file. The electricity file is such a mess now. Uh, and, and they will ha- live with the consequence. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Um, we've been talking a little bit about the issues that uh, will be facing you, the pocketbook issues facing you uh, and all Ontarians as we head into the next election, which, if you ask me, cannot come soon enough, but it is now 18 months away. And the one big pocket issue that is affecting everybody there is no one it is not affecting is, of course, your hydro bills. And if you think they're high now, it's all about to be hit again. And soon, because cap and trade comes into effect in the new year. Aren't you excited? Yeah, let's be excited. The prices are going to go up on everything. I was uh, listening to Glenn Murray, who is the Environment and Climate Change Minister on a radio station recently, where he cavalierly kind of brushed off the cost. It's just four cents a liter of gas. Just a cup of coffee, he said. Yeah, well, what you fail to remember is that that's my cup of coffee, and I, f- I feel like I already pay enough for my coffee. You know, the Auditor General just uh, pegged the costs of cap and trade to taxpayers at $8.3 ba, 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 billion. That's how I say it to my son, ba, billion uh, dollars over the next four years. That is a hell of a lot of coffee. But the reality is cap and trade means everything, gas, groceries, electronics, goes up. Let's bring in Tom Adams to the conversation. He's an independent energy and environment consultant. Good to have you, Tom. That's great. Thanks, Alex. So cap and trade is coming in the new year. I'm not sure people really kind of understand what what it's going to mean for them, but in about two to three weeks, we're going to see new taxes. Yeah. um, uh, You know, a spectacular new uh, green initiative of the Ontario government um, and one of the one of the things I find most interesting about it is that uh, one of the main purposes of the cap and trade. Well, of course, it's a it's a revenue tool, right? Like it's. A, I don't I don't allow that language to be used on my shows. They okay, are taxes. Okay, so, okay, I'm putting that spin out. I, I got yeah, to keep sarcasm <laughs> down here. It's a new yeah. a, a new tax, um, uh, and and the the uh, you know it, it's going to be bringing in a huge amount of cash. Um, uh, and one of the things we learned from the Auditor General's report, the, the government has earmarked the largest slice of the incoming revenue to be used to pay down the cost of electricity. So a, a new electricity subsidy program coming um, probably just in time for the uh, next provincial election. When have we ever seen that before? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we saw that in the 2011 election. Um, uh, there's a, a long, ugly history of governments uh, using our own money to, uh, you know, buy elections, and uh, specifically in electricity in Ontario for over the course of many elections. Um, but in this case, the the new cap and trade program comes in, uh, uh, generates 
fresh flood of cash into the Ontario government. One of the things they do with it is to try and cover up some of the mess created by their last major green program. This is the electricity transformation. Yeah, subsidize their way out of the problem. Yeah, yeah. And and you've got one, you know, green uh, um, uh, labeled program or green marketed program uh, um, being used to cover up the consequences of a previous a green branded program. It, it, like it, it's, it, it's, this is a government that just doesn't know how to stop digging holes, at creating bigger and bigger problems. No, you know, I tweeted out something to Mr. Murray, who has yet to block me, but I'm sure he will. But, um, you know, challenging him that this raises taxes on everything and costs of living for people. And he said, quote, nothing drives up food prices like climate change and drought. Food security is the number one issue uh, with climate change. To which I responded, yeah, great. But right now, people in Northern Ontario are choosing between food and energy. So, like, try telling people that. I mean, yes, we all want to do our part for the environment but not at the cost of people unable to heat their homes and put food on their table. Yeah, you, you know, um, uh, in your introduction, you were, you were referring to the um, uh, Environment Minister uh, Murray uh, dismissing the uh, cost of this new cap-and-trade program. Oh, it's just a cup of coffee. Um, uh, it, it might be interesting for your listeners to kind of harken back to when we've heard that line before. When, um, uh, when, when the, uh, the, 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 the green energy program was getting ramped up in Ontario, um, uh, and they, they, um, uh, an environmental group called the Clean Air Alliance was campaigning to shut down the coal plants, their whole pitch was that um, uh, the cost of getting rid of coal was equivalent to a cup of coffee and a donut. Mm-hmm. And they had some phony study that uh, cooked up some silly numbers that turned out to be ridiculous in hindsight. But um, uh, the government picked up on this whole thing, that it was a cup of coffee and a donut. Uh, and that justified the, uh, the whole big program um, uh, that ended up, you know, doubling the cost of electricity in Ontario. <laughs> a little bit more than a cup of coffee and a donut. Like, we're talking, you know, like maybe five, six billion dollars added to Ontario's overall electricity bill every year for a period of 20 years, something like that, as the ultimate cost of consequences of getting rid of coal. So uh, in the uh, when when government starts talking about oh it's just a cup of coffee as the uh, as the way of dismissing their new tax, I, I get very nervous. Yeah, darn right, because uh, someone pays for their coffee and they're usually drinking the premium brand. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML.